We are going to continue in Philippians. I didn't know if we were going to have a PowerPoint this week, so unfortunately you don't get the map today of Philippi, but we were able to get up the scripture where we're actually going to start with yes and I will rejoice in verse 18. If you saw the email, the title of today's sermon is Die to Self and Live to Christ. Let me open reading Philippians 1. Verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruit for work for me. I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. That's right. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, as we worship you with our, with our offering of, of uh, financial sacrifice, Lord, uh, of giving, of, of our time, Lord, to assemble on the Lord's day as we meet to worship you through singing and interceding through prayer, Lord. God, now we pray uh, that we would worship you through the preaching of the word and, and receiving your word, God, that you would use it to glorify yourself, that you would use it to glorify the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, that you would use your word, that it would not return void, but accomplish your purpose that you've set out for this morning, Lord. And God, we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. I'm certain most of you have, but if you ever signed a contract, either for a car or for a house or just something expensive, and the salesperson handed you a pen and jokingly just said, here, sign your life away. That's what today's passage is about. It's about signing our life away. And because what we'll learn in this passage and what we learn from the Gospels, what we learn from the Word of God is that our life is the cost to become a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we come to Jesus as sinners in need of His grace and mercy, and we are sinners in need of His grace and mercy, we come with nothing except the expectation that we are ready to sign our life away to Christ. What, what everything we have, everything we were, everything we are, we are laying down for Christ. Once we do, once we sign that dotted line at the foot of the cross, once we place our faith in his death, that our sins are forgiven and believe that he has risen from the dead. Once we choose to repent from our sins, who we were before faith, we sign that dotted line and our life belongs to him. It no longer belongs to us. 
this passage, I think, helps paint the picture <laughs> what we're agreeing to once we sign that dotted line. So the first point is our suffering leads to perseverance. Look at verses 18 and 19, starting in, yes, I will rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. Sorry, that's ESV. I'm reading from a CSB. So it's funny because that word deliverance and salvation is actually one of the debates amongst uh, theologians more brilliant than myself. Now, verse 18 ends with, with Paul emphasizing that he will rejoice through his trials, through the trials that we went through last week, his imprisonment, and everything that's, that's uh, taking place, the, the, the preachers with false motives that are preaching, still preaching the gospel, but they're preaching to bring him harm. So he will rejoice through his trials because he knows that that suffering has a purpose. And in verse 19, he says, it will lead to my salvation. In the ESV, it says it will lead to my deliverance. Now, at first glance, and by the different translations, it will lead to my salvation sounds a bit confusing. What's Paul mean? It will lead to his salvation. As I was thinking about that, is he, is he speaking about deliverance or is he speaking about salvation as in deliverance from prison? Or is he just speaking about actual salvation? As I was thinking through that this week, I thought it would be helpful if we just first clarify what it doesn't mean before we affirm what it does mean. Because it doesn't mean that God forgives our sins through suffering, nor does God forgive our sins through our trials. God doesn't forgive our sins by the amount of sacrifices that we make. God doesn't even forgive our sins if we become imprisoned for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one sacrifice. There's only one thing Jesus or that God forgives our sins for, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have nothing to do with that. That sacrifice is, is, is our Lord who offered Himself as a blood payment for our transgressions. God forgives us on the basis alone that Christ died for us, sinners such as us. So, so at least we can eliminate, in, in verse 19, any idea that Paul is referring to some type of works-based salvation, because he is not. The only <laughs> works that God accepts is the works of Jesus Christ our Lord, the sinless Son of God incarnate. So if we move on to that, I would actually suggest that the answer lies in the process of our salvation. That's what Paul is referring to. And if we follow the order in the chain of salvation, which we find in Romans 8.29, if you turn to Romans 8.29, it's, it's known as the chain of salvation, which says those who God predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he sanctified and those he sanctified he glorified 
glorified. So we are not glorified yet. We will not be glorified until Christ returns. That's the fulfillment of our salvation, right? There's a process there taking place. We're still awaiting glorification on this earth. And while we await that glory, we're in the middle of sanctification. Because <laughs> there's still work to be done in us until we reach that final goal. Therefore, the Spirit of God works in us and through us to continually reshape who we were into something completely new. And that takes time. Because who we were wasn't worth anything. There's a lot to recreate. And therefore, that new image that the Holy Spirit takes and reshapes us and creates us into is no image like us at all. It's the image of Jesus Christ. The Spirit works to make us look more like Jesus. The, the work of transforming us to look like God's Son is called sanctification. A few weeks ago, my daughters and I went into the library here in Leavenworth, and they were handing out... Uh, I don't even remember what it was called, like these air clay little lumps that you could get so that families could actually just make ornaments out of them and then they air dried and then you could paint them and hang them up on your tree. I don't know if they still have it, but they were really nice. And when you begin, when you get that lump of clay, right, you, you first, you, you have to know what you want to shape it into, what type of ornament you want to make. That way you can mold it into that image. This is a true story. <laughs> and, 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 and it's fun. We actually haven't done it yet. But, but once you're done, and you think about it, just that lumpy piece of clay that resembled nothing, you know, now becomes this, this, this shiny ornament that that is on display for everyone to see. That's what we were prior to our faith in Christ, prior to being sanctified to be made in to look more like Christ. We were nothing but lifeless lumps of clay. And God chose to take that lifeless lump and say, I'm going to shape that into something. But that something is the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. In case you're in the process of it, you know sanctification can be somewhat painful at times. Now, typically when we refer, when we refer to sanctification, we usually speak it in regard to sin. But here in verse 19, Paul says that, that suffering, his trials, is also part of sanctification. And I think it's very helpful because like Paul, it teaches us that God has a purpose for our suffering. And that purpose is to make us look more like Jesus. That's part of the process of salvation. Conversion wasn't a one-time moment, right? 
where we just went, made an altar call, said, I'll, you know, follow Christ. And then nothing happens after that. That moment of conversion begins this process where God continues to work in our life to make us look nothing like who we were before. He makes use. This is something great about the care, the goodness of God that I hope can resonate in our hearts and our minds that God makes use of every single one of our grieving circumstances. If you're grieving this morning because there's some sort of sorrow or multiple sorrows in your life, you can be certain that while it may be hard to believe, the Word of God says that God is using every one of those circumstances for a purpose. And, and, and it's, it, it leads also to our perseverance in faith. That's why Paul says this will lead to my salvation, because as he said in verse six of Philippians one, he who began a good work will continue that work until the day of completion. And the continuation of that work is called sanctification. And then we see Paul, Paul mentions two things uh, along with that. Included in his sanctification and perseverance. Because I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Prayer, strength from the Holy Spirit. I love that Paul desires the Philippians' prayer here in this verse. Mainly because last week I emphasized that God has predetermined everything that comes to pass. Which should make one wonder then. Well, if God has determined everything and already knows what he's going to do, what's the purpose of praying and asking him for anything? In other words, why should we pray if God already knows what he's going to do in advance? And the answer is that the purpose of praying to a God who has determined what he will do is because He has determined what He's going to do once we ask Him for it. Now, if if that's confusing, I'll try to put it simpler, that, that God has determined that our prayers are the means or a means for Him to bring about His plan. So when God predetermined what He was going to do, He also predetermined that He would do it when we prayed and asked for it. It's a good lunchtime conversation. That should not be a it should not be a cause of concern that God uses our prayers to complete his will or his predetermined will, because the same God who 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 does that is the same God who used the murder of his son to complete his predetermined plan of our salvation. Jesus didn't die on the cross by chance. There was no contingency plan. The gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was always plan A. How all that stuff goes together, man, it just blows my mind. 
And I can sit and I just lay in bed like, well, I'm not going to sleep tonight. Just trying to consider and think through these things. And reading over and over again, theologians, again, more brilliant, and just wondering, what did he just say? God's sovereignty is just hard to understand. But the Bible says and teaches that he's in control of all things. But he also says that he wants us to ask him for things and to pray. And Paul says that with confidence. Paul says, look, pray for me, Philippians. Pray that I would finish my race well. Pray that I would be unashamed when I stand before Christ. Pray that I would honor Christ in every circumstance he lays before me. Pray that the Spirit of Christ would strengthen me. I mean, the Apostle Paul, right? This is the Apostle Paul. He's saying, I need need prayers for strength. I'm having a hard time getting through this. The Apostle Paul knew he was weak and in need of God supplying him with strength to persevere. And see, because when we do get to verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain, to live is Christ, in order to do that, what Paul says there, to live is Christ, we're going to have to rely on a strength that we do not possess on our own. And if the Apostle Paul knew and depended on the prayers of the Philippians and other Christians, we should not be tempted into thinking that we are spiritually mature enough that we don't require the prayers of others ourselves. And it's, it's as clear as day in this passage that even the mighty Apostle Paul, as great as he was, as confident as he was in the faith, still coveted the prayers of fellow Christians. And I think it serves as a great reminder that the Christian life has never been one designated to live in isolation. We're meant to be together. We're meant to assemble together. We're meant to fellowship together. We're meant to share each other's burdens together. And we're meant to rejoice together. And we're definitely, we're definitely supposed to worship together. And this Christian life was never intended to be done on our own strength either. He brings up one of those refrigerator theology magnets. You know, that it's, 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 it's true verse. God never gives us more than we can handle. But that's not true, right? And temptation, but it's not true. God gives us way more than we can handle. In fact, The breath of life is more than we can handle because we're born sinners under condemnation because of what Adam did in the fall. And we need the grace of God to survive into transition into eternity with our creator and redeemer. We are we start off life at a disadvantage. We must rely on the strength of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I, I took out about a thousand words for my sermon because it was going to be a really long one on that. So I'm just going to move to point two. Christ-like living comes at a cost. Just for your reference, I always like to do a word count so I know how long you're going to be sitting you know, on a Sunday morning. And I mean, this sermon just kept going and going and going and going. I think I deleted probably 4,000 words. So maybe a good homework assignment is, what does it mean to rely on the Spirit? How do we rely on the strength of the Spirit? But that's, we're moving to the next point. Point two, Christ-like living comes at a cost. Verses 20 and 21. Paul says, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything. What is that what he says in the ESV too? Yeah, there we go. But with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. I mean, it's, I think it's somewhat simple to understand what he's saying. His desire about not being ashamed is a desire to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ until his last breath. That's what Paul wants. That's his hope. That's his expectation. That's pray for me that I would be a faithful witness and never bring shame and reproach on the name of Jesus Christ. How do we pray for our elders? Pray that. Pray that we would remain faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ until our final breath. We can pray that for all of us. Funny story. I don't know if it's funny. It's an almost ironic story. Before I was saved, I actually sang in a choir during the Southern Baptist Convention uh, in Orlando, Florida. They didn't know I wasn't saved, and I guess I probably didn't either. But years later, I saw the president of the SBC who was at that conference, and he was the current president at the time. I saw him in Missouri at a retreat. And I, I didn't know him really, but I admired him for his years of faithful service. And I told him about the time that I sang in the choir back in Orlando, Florida, before I was saved. And I remember hearing him speak and while he was the acting president. I, I even remember <laughs> a friend I golfed with telling me that that guy was his favorite preacher, even more than Alistair Begg, which offended me because Alistair Begg was my favorite preacher. Now, fast forward, since that time I got to see him in Missouri, in more recent news, this man's name was involved in the sexual scandals that the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee, just put out not too long ago. Now, that man can be forgiven by the grace of God. That is the extent of God's love who forgives the worst of the transgressions even of his own leaders if they repent and ask for forgiveness. That's the power of the grace of God that that man can still be forgiven. But somewhere, somewhere the man who was once an SBC Southern Baptist president got off the path of verse 20 that says, my expectation is hope is that I will not be ashamed, but now as always, Christ would be highly honored in my body, 
Somewhere this man's ministry became about what pleases him more than what pleases Christ. And because of that, he has publicly brought shame and reproach on the name of Jesus Christ. Not just in SBC, but across the entire church that's heard about this. All denominations who know about this. I was reminded this week of something one of my oldest pastors said during a Bible study. He said, people don't blush anymore. We live in a day and age where everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. Where the, the, the moral compass of humanity, it, it spins in whatever direction the wind blows. And therefore, people do whatever they want without any regard to the reproach that it might bring on themselves or bring on their family. And as Romans 1 says, not only do they do it, but they encourage others to do it and applaud those who do. He was right. He, nobody blushes anymore. Paul uses words in this passage like shame and honor. We, we live in a culture that couldn't be further from the notion of what those two words mean. We, we live in a time where honor is mocked and shame is applauded. Paul says, not for me. I don't care what Rome is doing. I don't care what Caesar's doing. I will honor Christ. I will be faithful to Jesus by word and by deed so that I will have nothing to be ashamed about. I think it's our application <laughs> to live our lives in such a manner that no matter what we say or what we do, it honors Christ. Last week, I briefly touched on the different plans that, that Christians or churches, uh, seminaries, whatever, uh, uh, what they do or try to orchestrate to figure out how can we draw more people to our church? How can we become more attractive so that people want to come? But, but, but here... Paul says to the Philippians, listen, guys, you really want to have something that nobody can find anywhere else, something that will truly set you apart, something that will make you noticeable. Then cut out all the nonsense and be a people who seek to honor Christ in all that they do. He said, that's attractive. That's radiance in darkness. And until the church can provide to the community with that. We're no different than any other secular organization that's just trying to gain more clients. More clients. That doesn't just go for our church. That goes for any church. We don't need lessons. We don't need books written on how the church can become more relevant. What the church needs most is a group of people gathering together, figuring out how they can become more relevant. Holy. I were to live a life unashamedly, I 
think there's, you remember those, well, you may have one, those uh, wristbands, uh, bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? I'll probably change it a little bit. But if, if we live our lives through the filter of, does this honor Jesus or not? That's, that's when we get the correct answer, right? What does the word of God say? How, well, well, pastor or Timothy, how do I know if this honors Christ or if this honors Christ? Well, what does the word of God say? We have to be a people that submit to the word of God. That's how we honor Christ. Because when we disobey the word of God, we bring dishonor to Christ. So does this honor Jesus? If that is the hallmark of our life, not we honor Jesus because God will forgive us if we honor Jesus. God only forgives us on the basis of what Jesus did for us. But now he requires us to obey him, to walk faithfully in his commands. Does this honor Jesus? If that's the hallmark of our thoughts, our life, and we walk faithfully in that, we are going to live a life that honors Jesus. That sounds much easier than actually doing it. Because in order to honor Christ, it's going to require that we persistently choose, make the choice to die to ourselves or to deny ourselves. That is why Christ like living comes at a cost. As Jesus told his disciples in Mark 8, Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. <laughs> Jesus looks at the crowd, his disciples, and says, Listen, you want to know what the, what the cost is to be my disciple? It's your life. It requires everything. This is what Paul is getting at, is what, it, what does it mean to live is Christ? It means we must repeatedly take sides with God against ourselves. It's the soundtrack of our life. Everywhere we go, everything we do, everything we say, and everything we even let our minds dwell on when nobody's watching has to be filtered through. Not my will, but your will be done. It's hard. It's hard to give our will up, our desires up, and say, let your will be done. But we definitely have the example for us set in the Garden of Gethsemane who said, Lord, I, if this cup can pass, please take it from me. If the cup of your wrath can pass, take it from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And loved one, we made that profession of faith. <laughs> we, we, we agreed to that type of allegiance in our baptism. Our baptism was a public declaration that Jesus had become Lord of our life in all areas. We chose, we decided that we would make the decision daily 
to follow him at any cost. Hopefully someone emphasized what it meant to follow Christ at any cost. We would have to die, deny ourselves, die to our desires, align our hearts to God's desires, and we'd have to stay active in repenting from every sin that takes priority in our heart. And <laughs> don't listen to Calvin that says, hey, even as Christians, our hearts are idol factories. As soon as you get rid of one idol, another one's coming. It's, this is a small one. I'll give you a public testimony. One nice thing about living in Pacific time is I actually got to watch the college football playoff uh, uh, choices this morning before I came. And it suddenly hit me after the third one was chosen and Ohio State had not been picked yet for fourth. That, oh, man, there could be a chance they don't. And then I thought, well, that's good, Pastor. So, so you're about to go preach, to give up your life at all costs, and you're more concerned if Ohio State makes the playoffs than going to preach what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what's sad is you're actually sad that there's a chance Ohio State isn't going to make the playoffs, and you're more upset about that than your allegiance to preaching this Sunday morning. That doesn't mean if, well, wait, my wife would not say that. She wanted a woman to say I was going to say that doesn't mean it returned any Ohio State gifts if that's what you got me for Christmas. But then my wife would say, don't say that because then everyone's going to get you Ohio State gifts. So just delete that from the record. But we have to do a heart check in everything. As silly as it may seem about football, I have to do my own heart check. Believe it or not, there's times they're down in a game. How do I treat my daughters? Not like I would treat them if Ohio State wasn't down. Why? Because they're an idol in my heart. And I must repent from that. Some may just call that being a religious fanatic. Or, or maybe even being legalistic. But what I read in Mark 8 is that that's what Jesus says is the cost of being his disciple. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. This is the way of the cross. And we've, I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard love is a verb many times. But so is picking up our cross and denying ourselves daily. That requires action. Can transition to something joyful about <laughs> our life being the cost of discipleship. That I realized in verse 21. To live as Christ. It, it, it could sound like Paul is saying living to Christ, but dying to self. It's just dreadful, right? <laughs> because no matter the cost or how bad it gets, I'll just serve Christ until I die. Fine, just I'll just do it, whatever. That's not what Paul's saying. Right? Because while seeing Christ, as he says, is gain, is the goal of the Christian faith. 
And while that gain comes through death until Christ returns, it is gain to give up what you cannot keep. It is gain to be rewarded with what you cannot lose. It is gain and it is joyful to live for Christ and die to self. What's the, 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 the temptation, the, the, the deception that comes from just throwing that stuff out the window is what, what we think we cannot find joy without is actually not able to provide us with the type of joy we would have if we just removed it from our life. And if you're anything like me, you might have already learned the lesson. Whatever we think will make us happiest usually ends up bringing us the most misery. It never satisfies. Living to Christ does. And it will cost you your life. But he is worth it. And I want to end on, on that point face to face. Not a clever title for a final point, but verses 22 and 23. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. We'll get to that in a second. But what Paul tells us here is death does not have the final say so. And I think about verse 21 for a moment. If death is the end when we take our final breath, then that's not much of a gain, is it? In fact, that's just a complete loss. If, if you remember, Paul says to the Corinth church, look, if we're wrong about the gospel, if, if, if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, then we're out of our mind, and you should just eat, drink, and be merry, and do whatever you want, for tomorrow we die. In other words, what, what, what's the point of picking up the cross and denying self if, if Jesus did not actually raise from the dead? Because if he didn't, none of this matters. But if he did, then everything we do matters and has life in that reality. And the word of God says that the resurrection, our resurrection is a reality and death is not the end doesn't have the final say so Christ does because Jesus stripped death of its power when he rose from the grave it's one of the reasons I say every sermon every week should be an Easter sermon because the only way I can get out of bed some mornings is by remembering that there is a greater reward coming than what this life has to offer and if death is all we have to look forward to for the rest of eternity and we can understand why humanity is just left out in the cold, wondering what in the world is the purpose of this all? The gospel, the gospel answers that question. Our purpose, what is the purpose of it all? Our purpose of existence, of being created, is to be satisfied in God, to enjoy Him, to worship Him, to, to revel in His glory. As, as Augustine said, our souls cannot rest until we find a rest 
in thee. King James Version, until we find our rest in God. And therefore, the goal of our faith, that expectation, what we're looking forward to, the ultimate reward is seeing God face to face. Because after we fall asleep in this life, we wake up in glory. We transition from faith in Christ to seeing Christ and being with him. What we believe without seeing becomes visible. And at that moment, when we see Christ, we realize completely that this life, that life we just left when we left the earth, had nothing to offer that is more beautiful or glorious than our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Nothing will be able to satisfy, and nothing could satisfy like the radiance from his glory when we stand in his presence. It's a longer sermon, but I didn't just want to leave us with the cost without realizing what the reward is. When I was in Cavalier uh, as a pastor in North Dakota, one of... Uh, just a lady that had become really near and dear to us. Um, she, she passed uh, shortly after her husband did, and they went home to be with the Lord. And I was, I was hoping before she did, she got cancer, and I was hoping one time she'd just be able to come back and worship with us as a church again. And I said that to one of my deacons uh, one morning after she passed, and he was like, dude, she is in the greatest worship session of her life right now. And I was like, that's a pretty good point. That's a pretty good point. There, there's no worship we could perform that's greater than just standing in the presence of God. Seeing God is known as the beatific vision. That's our big term for today. It means the sight that makes happy. It comes from Matthew 5, 8, which says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is the day when we will see the triune God mediated through the person of Christ Jesus. As I said, it's the goal of our Christian faith. It's what we're created for and what we've been redeemed for. He created us to enjoy him, to know him, and experience his glory. And we traded that. We traded what we were created for. We traded that glory for our own desires. It wasn't just Adam and Eve, it's us too. Instead of worshiping the glorious one, we made false gods out of material images. We exchanged his glory, which can never fade, for that which can never satisfy. And, and sin, because of that, sin has banished us from his presence. But the gospel, the answer is that the blood of Jesus Christ mediates that separation. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin so that now we are fit to dwell with our God. We still sin, and we were sinners prior to Christ, but we are washed past, present, and future sins away so that we may dwell forever with a holy God. And when we reach that goal, when we stand in awe, seeing him face to face, there will be nothing, nothing that can steer us, our hearts away from wanting to be there and nowhere else. Nothing will be able to tempt us or replace him with false images. 
Nothing will make us consider that he is a lesser God than all we previously tried to replace him with. I'll end on this. The Mid, uh, Midwest professor, Midwest Baptist professor, and uh, one of my favorite theologians, uh, still living to read, uh, said this in regarding the vision of God. And this will close. He pointed to David's prayer in Psalm 27, 4, where David says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why, David? Why do you want to dwell in the house of the Lord? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Barrett goes on to say, David longs to behold the beauty of the Lord because he understands that outside God's temple are many idols that threaten to interrupt and disrupt that vision. Many lesser beauties that pretend to be equal substitutes for the beauty of the infinite, end quote. Loved ones, like David, we must realize there are no substitutes for the glory of God. There are no substitutes for knowing Christ. And that reality, I pray, should move our hearts to die to self and live to Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for you know, we thank you for having a building to be able to worship you in this morning, Lord, as we're not able to be in the Grange this morning. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. We thank you for his death and resurrection, Lord. God, we pray that we, you would forgive us, Lord, for the, the lesser gods and idols and, and things that we daily want to replace you with, Lord. But you are a gracious, merciful, and kind God that cares about us and calls us back and draws us back to yourself. Lord, thank you. As the song says, we may, we may be prone to leave the God we love, but you are faithful to bring back your covenant people, God. Lord, you are worthy to be worshipped. And Lord, I pray that, that if nothing else today, that the glorious sight of the triune God mediated through our Lord Jesus Christ would stir up affections in our heart and mind and strength, Lord, that would lead us to want to die to self, Lord, and pick up our cross and live to Christ. May I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.